Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. And today I'm speaking with wildlife researcher and whitetail expert, Dr. Carl Miller. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You might notice that this is not the voice of the well-mustachioed Mark Kenyon. Mark actually sent me an email last week saying that he was going to work on his extreme ironing skills and was really going to test his limits with his latest challenge. I don't, I don't know anymore, you guys. I don't have the energy to care. If you're wondering if Mark is as strange as he sounds, trust me, it's orders of magnitude worse when you get to know him. Anyway. I hope he cheats death with this latest hobby of his. And moving on, today I'm speaking with Dr. Carl Miller. There is no one out there who has contributed more to the body of whitetail research than this guy. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge who has given back an awful lot to the whitetail community. And on this show, we dive pretty deep into how deer hear and how good they are actually at hearing, which is going to surprise you. And then we get into how well deer can actually smell and why that's so tough to study. This episode is pretty heavy into science, but it will make you a better deer hunter. I promise. I think you're really going to like it. Carl Miller, it is an honor to get to talk to you. I, I, <laughs> you make me nervous by saying that honor. <laughs> I, I, I've read your stuff for a long, long time, man. And I, I got to ask you, are you the most published whitetail researcher on the planet? Well, Tony, first of all, you said you regret it for a long time. That would make me sound really old, which, which of course <laughs> I, I, I meant the last couple of years. <laughs> no, actually, I am. And I, I think right now I have published more in the scientific literature than anybody else has on white tails. I, after taking a look at the list of, uh, of stuff that you have out there, I would believe that because <laughs> <laughs> so, I've interviewed quite a few deer biologists and wildlife researchers, and you have a resume, man. Uh, I'm so, I'm so glad to have you on. There's, there's a couple things I really want to talk to you about, but first, uh, where, where did the whitetail obsession come from? 
Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to comment on is what you just said earlier about, you know, ha having such a a long list of publication and stuff in my in my career and stuff. And, you know, the reason for that is I've just absolutely been blessed by the people I've had the opportunity to work with. You know, a lot of good colleagues, a lot of good mentors, and particularly a lot of great graduate students. And those are the workhorses that got a lot of this stuff done. You know, I came up, come up with some ideas and just turn them loose on stuff. And uh, we, we put together a really good team at Georgia. And that, that, that team is continuing on with uh, the people who replaced me since I retired. So, but my obsession, I grew up in northern Pennsylvania in the big woods with the traditional hunting, deer hunting camp up there, lived and breathed white-tailed deer from probably the time I came out of the womb, I guess, a uh, long tradition. It may have actually come back, um, my birthday's in August, so I kind of backdated nine months, and I think I was a, pro a product of, hello, honey, I'm home from deer camp, you know? <laughs> uh, you're the first, I, I've interviewed a lot of people, nobody's ever traced back their conception date that quite that way. <laughs> Well, I shouldn't say that. Nobody's ever openly admitted it. So I guess my dad got his buck that year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. So it was, it was a, it was a family thing. It was the social thing. You know, you, you just grew up with it and you, you just parlayed it into a really, really long career, huh? Yeah. You know, and I, you know, starting out in college, I wanted to go into wildlife, but, you know, listen to guidance counselors and parents and stuff, you know, they said, well, you're not going to get a job in wildlife, so you got to go into something else. So I, I started off in, a, you know, in another field. And ultimately, by the time I was working on my master's degree, I thought, you know what, there's somebody getting jobs in wildlife and wildlife management with deer. If, if you're good, you'll get the job. So that's where I made my switch and uh, haven't looked back since. I mean, it's been a, it's been an incredible opportunity you know, over 40 years to work with the animal you love to work with. So when you were, when you were kind of kicking around the idea of going into this field, you had people in your life who said that's, there's, there's no money there, there's no jobs there. You got to look somewhere else. Right. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, you, you know, somebody has those jobs and if, you, you know, it might be a little more competition out there, but you know, if you're good, you're going to find one. Yeah. I, I had the same thing happen to me. I, I always wanted to be an outdoor writer. And when I went to college, a lot of people were like, listen, man, you got, you got to get, get a real job. You know, there's like 10 guys in the world making a living doing that. And, you know, lucky for me, I was just young and dumb enough and didn't have enough holding me down to not give it a shot. And it, it, you know, changed the arc of my life. Just, just pursuing that. Uh, right. That, and you've, you've done well with it. It's been, it's been fun. I've been lucky. <laughs> I feel lucky, man. Uh, I want to talk to you. Uh, you've studied so much different stuff in the whitetail world, but there's two things I got to talk to you about. And it's, it's how well a deer can hear, or I should probably rephrase that. How, a, how deer hear compared to us and how, how we kind of should be leaving behind what we know about hearing because of how we hear and how we should be thinking about how they have evolved to hear. And I want to do the same thing with, with their noses. Uh, so let's, let's start with deer hearing. Cause I, I know you've, you've bumped into this a lot where we, just as humans, we bring in this, this biases of like, okay, we know what hearing is like. We know how we hear. And so we look at deer and go, well, they must be way better at it because we give them a lot of credit, but it, that's not necessarily the case from your research. Yeah. And you know, this is the easy one, deer hearing, because to tell you the truth, deer hearing is really not that much different than ours, which, which really surprises a lot of people. 
there's been uh, two different studies that have done that, that have been done that looked at that. We did one at the University of Georgia. I had a graduate student named Gino D'Angelo, who's now on the faculty there. And he did one where we looked at auditory brain stem response, which actually measures the signal in the deer's brain in response to different sounds, you know, different uh, frequencies and different intensities of sound. And that study was done basically physiologically. And then there was a study done out of the University of Toledo by a father-son parent named Hefner. And they actually did what is called a behavioral, behavioral, that's a hard word to say, an audiogram where they actually trained the deer to respond if they heard a sound. And interestingly, both studies found essentially the same thing. The deer hearing range is very similar to ours. Their best hearing is probably a little bit higher frequencies than ours. We, we probably hear in the you know two to four kilohertz range, they hear in the four to eight kilohertz range at their peak. But if you lay, overlay the two curves, they are almost identical, which you know, so they, they may hear a little higher frequency better. We may hear low frequencies better, but it's not that much different. But the surprising thing that uh, people don't realize is that their ability to hear is not that much better than ours. It's essentially about the same. So how, how do you test that? So when you say, when you guys did the study and you're looking at the brain scan, I'm assuming it's, that's a, that's a great way to not have any false positives or any kind of right. ambiguous data, right? Like the brain lights up, you know, they heard it. And right. then they do this study down in Ohio and, you know, it's a conditioned response thing, probably a food thing or something, I'm guessing. Right. Uh, right. So how do you, how do you figure out like, cause I think when you, if you ask the average hunter, they would say, well, of course a deer can hear something farther away than us. And of course they can pinpoint it better. Like it would be for most people, it'd be a given, but how do you test, how do you test to figure that out to go, you know, their hearing is not that much better than ours. Okay, now you're going into a place that I want to get. There are some caveats to this. Okay. Uh, and that's related to the external ears that a deer has. You know, this is what the deer's hearing capability is when the sound is played into the deer's ear. And um, and both of it is done with different frequencies and you use different intensities, you know, different volumes of the sound to get the response. Uh, so, but the difference is the deer have these large external ears called, you know, they're called pinae. Uh, which have multiple functions, um, one of which is to accentuate sound that's entering into the ear. So it's like when you put your hand to your ear when you're trying to hear something. Uh, it actually funnels more of that sound into your ear. So when a deer has its ears cupped towards an object that's producing that sound, it actually accentuates that sound. But on the flip side, when they're turned away, away from something, it decreases the sound. So when the deer's ears are po pointed forward, it's not hearing as well behind. Uh, or when its ears are backwards, it's not hearing it well forward. So when a deer's ears are cupped towards you, that's when it's going to have the best ability to pick up that sound. That also helps a lot with uh, the ability to uh, uh, lo localize the, the source of the sound, to find the directionality, because that extends the distance between the two ears out further. And the distance between the ears is what helps you to identify where the sound came from. Mm -hmm. So... One other thing to think about this is, though, and I, I know a lot of hunters will say, oh, you know what, I've been sitting on deer stand and I've been watching deer right under my stand. And all of a sudden, it did deer picked up its head and looked in a different direction like it heard something. And I never heard something. So why is that? Well, I, you know, the way I kind of uh, explain that is that deer spend their entire life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days in the in the woods, they know what they're supposed to hear and what they're not supposed to hear. 
you know what you're supposed to hear in your house or not supposed to hear in your house. If you drop a nickel versus a dime on the kitchen floor, you'd know the difference, right? Or if you're driving your truck and it starts to make a weird sound, you know, you say, that's not normal. You know, most of my wife can't do that, but most people can, <laughs> can do that. So, uh, so they, they know what they're supposed to hear. How many times have you been on a deer stand and had a deer in front of you and you heard a rustle behind the behind you and you turn around and it's a squirrel and the deer never picked its head up the deer knew what it was supposed to hear and knew what was natural and what was unnatural and that's what they're picking up on is the unnatural sound out in the woods i think it what this reminds me of i th- i think it was steve ranella that was talking about this when he spent some time down in the amazon with with natives who you know these indigenous indigenous people their life is condensed down to like 20 square miles of jungle and so they are just tuned into that. That's, you know, that's, it's an area that we, you know, like living in the modern world where we live, we, we don't think of things that way, right? Like you think of the city, you know, and you go to the grocery store or whatever, maybe you go to your farm, mm-hmm. but their entire existence is boiled down to that, whatever 20 square miles it is. So they know the trees, they know the plants, they know the animals, they know, you know, there's new tracks coming in here or whatever. And I always think mm-hmm. about that with deer. When you look at, if you use like a, a square mile as just like a generic home range, and then you think about that's their entire existence. And and, and we look at time a little bit differently, right? We, we have long lives compared to them. So they mm-hmm. spend one year there and we think that's, you know, like a young, whatever, little forky or something, a year and a half old out there, but he's spent his entire existence and maybe, you know, maybe he's dispersed or something, but you've got just a little piece of ground that everything that's there is what they encounter every day. And, right. they, and it's, it's a different thing. So they're so in tune to that environment compared to how we probably perceive it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, you, you can almost see it in, in you know, kids. And I, when I was teaching at the university, you could tell kids that grew up with an, you know, spending a lot of time out in the woods versus ones, ones who didn't that spend most of their time on a, a Game Boy or something, you know? Because the kids that spent a lot of time out in the woods could see things. They picked up on things. They just knew what was supposed to be there. And what. And if it was something unusual, they picked up on it where the other kids didn't. They didn't have the appreciation for it. Yeah. Well, I, I ran into that. I take a lot of kids turkey hunting. And, you know, I have twin 10-year-old daughters. One of them is phenomenal at details and paying attention in the woods. And one of them is oblivious. And <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, that's partially their wiring, but... I, I, and I'm used to them, but I took one of my nephews out who's, I don't know, I think he's 11 or 12, his first turkey hunt. He's never done it. He, he had deer hunted with his dad a little bit, rifle hunted. And I'm telling you, every sound we heard in the woods, he was like, what's that? What's that? What's that? Like he had no, and it, you know, it's stuff that we hear, you know, like you, you don't even acknowledge like blue jays flying overhead or mm-hmm. you know, a pileated woodpecker or whatever flying by. It's just like, so part of the landscape to him, he was just holy cow, I yeah. don't know what any of it, and it, it was a kind of an eye-opener for me. Yeah, and we only spend a few hours a week out in the woods compared to when you're spending, you know, 20, 24 hours a day out there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a different thing. So when you talk about, you know, their ears and and, and pinpointing stuff, when, when you say that, what it reminds me of is when you deer hunt a lot, you sort of intuitively learn, I mean, you probably learn just from your mistakes, that if, if a deer's looking in your direction, you don't call. If you know, right. like when you're bow hunting, because they're going to be on you in a second, but you wait till they turn their head and they're, those ears are, are, you know, 
turn the other way. Then you call and it just feels like that's the right move. Right. Or even if they're looking you're in your direction and the ears are turned back, which they have the ability to hear, you know, listen behind them. Yeah. But that's another thing to think about while you're deer hunting is watching the deer's ear. Because, you know, if you're watching the deer's ear, you can tell what that deer is thinking about as well. And, you know, if they all, all of a sudden they're, they're cupping their ears behind them, they're hearing something that they want more information on. It might be another deer. Uh, it might be something they're, they're trying to identify what that is. So it's time for you to pay attention to what's going on behind the deer. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I was curious about with you is how much, you know, like how many ideas for your research do you get just from sitting in the woods and hunting deer? Because like when you when you talk about like that, that right there, one of the things I always think is so cool, if you watch a deer you know, that's, that's chomping on some acorns or maybe eating a corn cob in the field or something. And they think they hear something, you watch them stop chewing. And it's the same mm-hmm. thing people do. You know, like if somebody speaks to you and you got a mouthful of Cheerios or whatever, you, you stop chewing for a second so you can hear and you see those right. little behaviors. Like how often are you just, have you been in your life just sitting out in the woods and saw like a little thing like that and went, you know what? And then and it sparks some kind of idea for you. Well, I think that happens, you know, quite often. Um, I, I don't know how if I can give you a specific instance on it, but you know, just just watching deer behavior, I'm always asking the question, why is that deer doing what that deer is doing, instead of just accepting the fact that it is doing that. And I think that makes the difference in trying to answer and, and trying to figure out, you know, a lot of the questions we asked. Yeah, I mean, I I tell people, you know, we get hit with questions constantly on like, you know what, what scent should I buy? What call should I buy? Like, it's always like, how, what, what can you tell me to get me closer to dead bucks? <laughs> and I'm always like, pay attention to deer, figure out where they like to walk, figure out yeah. why they like to walk there and then go shoot them. And uh, yeah. people, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They want to buy a crutch instead of going out there and actually learning the animal. And that's what I, you know, all, I'm a minimalist when it comes to hunting. I generally have a, either my bow and an arrow or a gun and a couple of shells, and that's about all I carry to the woods with me. I, you know, I use my mouth to make any calls that I want to make, but I don't like to carry a lot of gear because it kind of takes away from the hunt to me. Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a minimalist too. I like I like simple. I like <laughs> I like just trying to figure out what makes them tick and mm-hmm. try to capitalize on that. Um, let's back up one second. There's something I wanted to ask you about. So when you, when you mentioned, you know, the frequency in which we hear versus the frequency in which we think deer hear, it's a little bit different. Why? Why? I mean, Uh, where's the evolutionary divergence there? You you know what that might be? It might be that, you know, the deer that we tested were, you know, five, six, four, five, six years old or something. You know, most times humans, when they're being tested, they're, you know, 20 years old. And, you know, we lose our some of our ability to hear higher frequencies. And it might be just something that over time that the, the subjects themselves have lost their ability to hear high frequencies. I can't hear high pitches like I used to anymore. Uh, so that might be part of it, whether or not there's an evolutionary thing, significance to it. Um, heck, I don't know. You know, some of the, some of the calls that they deer make, the, 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 the call and alarm, that that's a higher pitch, higher frequency sound. It might be a little bit easier for them to hear that sound, you know, to follow because, but, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a, it's not such a major difference between the deer and the human that there's really that much to really, I don't know, there's not that much to, to really try to put together an evolutionary picture for it. Yeah. It, it might not mean anything. Yeah. It's not that different. Yeah. I mean, or it might, 
I, I when I when I hear stuff like that, I always wonder. You know, you mentioned like a you know a deer snorting an alarm, or you know maybe it's tied to coyote howls or some some predator mm-hmm. the pitch of some predator's call or something at some point, or it just could be just the way things shook out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well that's a nice that's a good way to say it. I wish I would have said it that way. Yeah, I mean it's it just it's it's interesting. It is, it is. yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. Has anybody? So when you when you talk about how a whitetail, you know, we 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 know how they use their ears, you know, we know what they're doing with them. Has anybody ever studied mule deer in the same capacity? Uh, not that I know of, but it would make sense. Obviously, with those larger ears, they have a better, you know, and it's a greater enhanced ability to capture some of that sound and maybe to localize that sound as well. But yeah, and it, do you think that would come from just uh, maybe being in a more open, bigger, bigger terrain or something? Yeah, you know, distances distances are much greater in those situations, and sound is carries further. Uh, you know, in in a, in a closed forest situation, the whitetail lives up close and personal, whereas it, a mule deer lives. You know, his his experience is much broader of what he's visualizing or hearing. Yeah, yeah, it's just a different thing. Um, anything besides the obvious, you know, metal on metal sounds, maybe like you know, a too tight tree strap on the wrong tree bark can really make a nasty sound anything anything that like you personally when you're you're hunting because of your research on deer hearing have you ever are you just like i can't make that noise or i just it, when you make it you're like oh that's terrible you know one of the sounds that kind of falls right into the peak of deer's hearing capability is kind of the, the rustle sound you make when you your clothing moves you move against a tree uh that you know that that brush um, and some types of fabrics make an awful lot of noise. Uh, and that's one of the things I work with, with sick on, uh, uh, camo on is developing some of this, you know, helping them develop some of their camo based on deer's hearing capabilities. And they're trying to minimize the sound that those camos make. And, I, you know, I think that's critically important. You know, you just don't hear nylon naturally out in the woods, you know? Yeah, or uh, so, Velcro. <laughs> or Velcro, you know, any, any of those types of things. Any unnatural sound is going to be picked up pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. it, it's just, it's interesting when you see, it's interesting when you could like walk down the aisle of a Cabela's or wherever and look at the different camo and look at a, you know, all the different bino harnesses and the different clasps and Velcro and all the stuff. And then over the years you go out and hunt and you just realize, like, if I'm wearing this kind of jacket, I can't turn with my back to a tree when the deer are close. Like, yeah. Well, if I stand up, I got to stand up with my back away. Or you have some stuff that you can kind of ride that right up that bark, and it's not going to make any noise. And it's little stuff like that. I, I think when you get a lot of bow hunting experience, you just start to intuitively go, <laughs> you know, I'm going to green light that, and I'm never going to wear this again kind of stuff. Right. And that, you know, that, that fabric choice and the noise that that fabric makes might be more important than the actual camo that you're using. You know, pick your camo off with your ears, not your eyes. Yep. Um, I want to, I want to ask you one more thing about deer hearing before we move on. So when, when I asked you about the frequency in which they hear and in which we hear, and we kind of decided it might not mean anything at all. Uh, you mentioned, you know, as you get older, you know, we're like very aware that you know our hearing can be can go downhill right like we're we're very aware that our eyesight at a certain age like you're going to need your cheater glasses like we don't think about animals in terms like that 
they i don't i don't ever think about an old buck you know having any diminished sense of hearing or any d- diminished sense of vision do you think that happens i mean it, you know none of the studies have looked at an age relationship to that uh, or have found an age relationship to that uh, we didn't notice any diff- any difference in any of our study animals as related to age you know it's it it's possible but you know think about this you're dealing with a 6 year span between a, a fawn and a mature buck versus a 70 year span between you know a young child and a, and a older man well and you would you would have to account for the fact that even if there was some level of diminishment there you're also they're also layering in an extra year of survival experience and encounters mm-hmm. and so they would probably more than offset anything like that i just I, i've never thought about it that way yeah well also think about you know where do we lose our hearing from listening to too many chainsaws rock and rolls or gunshots you're right yeah or our vision is based on watching computers screens you know we lose it deer don't do any of that stuff right yeah well that's true and it I, in one very specific instance, I can say you can lose some hearing if your dipshit buddy shoots a 12 gauge right by your ear when a grouse flies over, uh, <laughs> and your ears will never stop ringing again. Uh, so that's, that's a bummer. And they, they don't have that happen very often to them, I guess. So. Occasionally they'll have a gunshot that, you know, if, if somebody happens to miss, but if they're lucky, they're got, they got that gunshot, right? Yep. Yep. Um, let's talk about, so I, th- I think if you, if you were going to just like rank them, if you're going to ask hunters, like, okay, what's the, what's the scent or, you know, what's the sense you want to avoid the most? You know, I think you'd, they, people would waffle back and forth between eyesight and hearing, you know, like you don't want to get spotted. You don't want deer to hear you doing something dumb, but the nose is the one you want to beat. And the nose is the one that's probably the hardest for us to understand. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, but you know what? I've, I've thought a lot. I've, I've asked asked that question and had that question asked me, I think the probably the most important one that I would want to beat is their sense of vision and particularly with their ability to detect movement. And that is, is the toughest one. The, the, the sense of smell is easy to beat. All you have to be is downwind of the deer and you beat it. Right. So that, that's the trick It's not, how do you, how do you mask your odor? It's just don't present your odor into a place where you expect the deer to be. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I would look at that maybe a little bit differently. So, uh, yes, if you're sitting in your tree stand and your scent blows to that deer, you're in trouble. But we're also like, I'm, I'm super into training bird dogs and, and working with dogs and like, I'm fascinated by their ability to smell stuff. Right. No question. It's, 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 we can't even fathom what they appreciate through their nose. No. Not, we, I don't think we could even in a million years, we, we're not even anywhere near it. But so what I think about is, yes, we have two, we have two tasks with whitetails a lot of times, right? The immediate moment of the hunt where you're like, I don't want him to smell me or it's over or whoever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever deer's going by, but we're right. also leaving residual scent out there. And yeah, yeah. I feel like we educate them that way, uh, to a level that we probably can't really appreciate. It, that's, that's conceivable but you know there's also coyotes and everything else walking through those woods that are potential predators for them that's leaving that's you know their scent in different places you know is it is how important is it for a deer to know that something was there versus something is there and i think the most important aspect is something is there right yeah so if it's an older scent that we've left and you know deer can very likely tell the age of scents as well and it's 
clearly they can tell the age, the, the difference in the age of a track that another deer left or that a predator left and very likely a human as well. Yep. Well, I, so I wonder about that because the, you know, the evaporation level of the scent, you know, like knowing which direction you were going, how long ago you were there. Like they're, they're really figuring out a lot of stuff with dogs on that front, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Like everybody's like, how does a dog know when I'm coming home from work? And it's like, it's a condition from, you know, being left at home every day and they know your scent smells at, at this strength now at five o'clock at night. So you're coming home, you right. know? And I, I, when I hear stuff like that, I always try to think about it in like a deer's in a deer's world, but there's just, there's just so much going on there. But I, when I, when I heard you on, on Bo's podcast, I would, if, if you would ask me before I listened to you say this, I would have said scent, you know, their, their olfactory abilities, that is predator detection. That's, that's like a major thing for him. But you actually said that it's, it's more about food and communication. Yeah. And I would, I would still say that, that, you know, predator, you know, the sense of smell is tremendous for predator detection if the predator is in the right place. You know, if the predator is approaching from downwind, the sense of smell is, is totally useless for the deer. Right. So, but, you know, the, the other aspect is, you know, the sense of smell that people don't appreciate is, you know, deer have to find food, you know, all, all, you know, basically that's what they're doing is all day long is, is foraging. And how do they find that food? They don't find that food by looking for it. They don't pick up an acorn to look and see if it's a good acorn versus a bad acorn. They, they smell the difference, right? If you ever sat on a deer stand and, you know, watched them eating acorns, you don't see them looking for acorns. They're snuffing. You can hear, you can actually hear them, you know, snuffing in the leaves for the acorns. So they're, they're detecting what they're going to pick on, what they're going to eat based on the sense of smell. You know, frankly, their, their eyes for that up close vision are not that good anyways. So they'd probably have a harder time finding an acorn with their eyes than we would. Yeah. Cause they're not, they're, their eyesight's not wired for that. And then, and then on top of that, you know, they don't go around with a, with, you know, a, um, a dendrology book trying to identify different plants and different leaves based on the shape of their leaves and stuff like that. They know what it's supposed to eat and what they're not supposed to eat by the smell of those plants, you know? And some plants have different compounds in them called anti-herbivory compounds, uh, like tannins and so forth, that deer can pick up on with their sense of smell or and or their sense of taste, and they can reject those in deference to other plants. And you probably even notice that, you know, deer can tell something, they, they, take, they pick the young growth, or deer can even pick out something that's been fertilized versus something that's not been fertilized because there's something different about that plant. And that's not by vision. That's by the sense of smell. So that sense of smell is incredibly important for them to, to for foraging. Yeah, they can probably, they can probably differentiate like levels of ripeness in fruit. Uh, they can probably differentiate like to some extent, like uh, micronutrient levels in different stuff, huh? Certainly, yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. How how do you study that? Uh, I don't know that you do. <laughs> so we're just guessing. Yeah, I'll tell you what. You know, I, I started out my career do, looking a lot with uh, deer scent communication and deer sense of smell and stuff like that, and that's why we switched to hearing and vision because it got a lot easier to do those studies because the sense of smell. There's so many aspects of this so many variables that come into play with, you know, working with the sense of smell. And we really have no appreciation for what the deer smells, you know, to, to, for even a comparison studies. So 
uh, you know, how, how do you study those things? You know, you, sometimes you maybe not even need to study them. Just good observation can tell you some of this stuff of what's going on, right? You don't have to have a controlled scientific experiment to, to know that if you fertilize your azaleas in your front yard, and deer's going to end up eating your azaleas, right? Mm-hmm. Which would tell you that deer can tell the difference. So, and, you know, it's even interesting, you know, just observations like there are times of year when deer will forage on different types of plants. There's a lot of plants that in the fall time, they, the, the deer will, you know, they won't use, utilize those plants all summer long. And then come some, sometime in on, uh, late August or early into September, they'll start really hitting those types of plants. What's changed? Are the deer hungrier? I don't think so. I think what, what has changed is something's changed about those plants. And as those plants are going to go into senescence, you know, they're going to be their deciduous plants, maybe they're losing their, you know, those secondary compounds that are those toxic compounds that are, you know, causing deer to avoid them. Or maybe uh, the, the sugar levels are going up because of their, they're transporting some of those sugars, you know, into the root system. So there's, there's differences that are occurring physiologically in those plants that deer are able to pick up with. And they're doing that with their sense of smell. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at 
twc.health slash meat eater. Do, do you think, because we, you know, when you talk about like a sugar content of, you know, certain plants or after the first hard frost or something like that, or, you know, a ripe apple versus a, you know, an early green one, that's just not the same thing. Do, do you think that we, because, you know, we eat off of taste, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we just do like, we're, we're not, most of us aren't paying attention to like micronutrient levels and stuff like that while we're eating and trying to have like a truly balanced diet that, that way. Right. But we do also kind of like inherently sometimes crave things that our body needs. You know, like if you go into the elk mountains for 10 days, you have, you, you know, on day eight, you have a different, like you, you have a different desire for food. <laughs> like even, even if you've kept yourself well-fed with whatever calorie amount you needed and you weren't in a big deficit, you're still like, man, I want a salad and a bacon cheeseburger. Like there's something your body or pregnant women, like they, I was just going to say a pregnant woman. Yeah. Those crazy. Like there's a reason they're eating chalk. And it's not because they're sitting here going, like, I, I really like the taste of chalk just once in a while. They're going, <laughs> they, the body is saying something. So I, I wonder about deer because we always focus on, like, the the taste aspect. It's like, oh, they're going to they're gonna hit the brassicas now because it got to 10 degrees last night and the, the sugar content or whatever. But I wonder how much of that is just tied to them inherently or instinctively knowing I need, you know, I need more of this. I need more of that. I need my you know, like I need this to be healthy and it, they're probably not aware of it. Yeah. And it, and it could be, I think, you know, the, is it an either or or a both and I think it's a both and, and you know, the, the, you know, the change in the, the taste probably affects them as well. Well, think about one that's, you know, very clear. They're craving for salt and they only crave salt during certain times of the year. That's during the spring and early summer when vegetation is very succulent. They're taking in a lot of water content, which means they're urinating a lot, which means they're losing a lot of sodium. And that's what's, that's what's driving their salt use is the uh, sodium deficit that most herbivores are running running against. Just just because of the, the seasonal timing and they're flushing out their system more. Right, right. Because, you know, there's so much they're taking in so much of that moisture in that young succulent vegetation. They're not drinking that much water. They're just. They're just having to get rid of a lot of water, which means you're going to get rid of a lot of sodium as well. So that's that's not tied to antler growth or anything like that, huh? Not necessarily, no. Hmm. That, you know, and, and it's probably, you know, there's also some aspect of fetal growth in there as well, you know, in that springtime. So, but, you know, we've seen some really neat movement patterns of deer in response to this sodium drive as well, where we had a study up in West Virginia a number of years ago where we had radio collared, a bunch of radio collared does. And on this study area, these does would, for about a week or two, would just disappear. It, and it generally occurred sometime in May or June. And then about two weeks later, they'd come back. And this was before the days of GPS. Uh, so we ended up having to go around, you know, really drive around and find these does. And it turned out a lot of these does were going to some old gas wells where there was a pool of water out in front of these old gas wells. And we took some measurements of that water, and it had really high sodium levels in it. So these does would go, and sometimes they would go miles to pick up, you know, and camp out for a week or two at these, these sodium sources, and then come back and uh, to their home range. So, so you know, it's kind of interesting that the, there's two aspects of that that are kind of neat. Is one of deer have an ability to recycle sodium in their body, so they're picking up that sodium load and they're you know and keeping it. But the question is, how did they find it? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How did <laughs> how the hell do they find that? Well. <laughs> And as well as interesting that, that some of the deer did this and some of the deer didn't. 
And, you know, we don't know this for sure, but it's very likely that some of the deer that actually went to these sodium sources must have been deer that have dispersed at some time or their ancestors dispersed at some time into this new area. But when these does went, a lot of times in June or even into July, a lot of times they took their yearlings with them and sometimes they took their fawns with them. So they were learning this like a migration pattern. They, they learned this from, and so it becomes a cultural knowledge in that deer herd among some of the deer that, hey, we go get our sodium and at this place. So do you, <clears throat> do you think there's any way, this is going to be super woo-woo, there's any way that there's like an ancestral sort of memory or something there that a, a deer, let's say that you take a you know two-year-old doe that's never been shown one of those spots. Could she know? Like, I mean, we, we could never know, right? Yeah. And I don't, I don't think she could know. Yeah. Cause it, it, you know, it doesn't make that sense that she knew because why didn't some of the other deer do it? But, you know, you think about it back in the, you know, pre-Columbian day before, you know, the white man got here, there were places where, uh, there were kind of mass migrations of herbivores to some of these sodium areas that, you know, they called them salt licks. And there's a number of different places you hear about deer run lick or something, you know, salt Creek or something like that, you know, all kinds, kinds of places, particularly across the Eastern United States. And those were places where the Indians and later the, you know, the early settlers set up to go kill deer because they knew the deer were going to be coming to these things. So it must be something that they learned through time. Yeah. And there were migrations to these sodium sources. Well, yeah, I mean, we we bring sort of a modern spin to that study you're talking about where you think about the, the source, you know, it's a man-made source and you, you don't think about it the same way as you do a natural salt lick out there somewhere where generations of deer would find it or be around mm -hmm. it or, or be aware of it in proximity to where their home range is or whatever. But it's really like, it doesn't, the deer don't care that that was not natural. <laughs> Like, right, they right. they don't give a shit if it was a, it, whoever put it there doesn't matter to them they just that's like a thing that they're they find and they know they need and a certain percentage of them pass that knowledge on and that's just how it happens right and you know in most places we don't see that 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 drive anymore or, or those movements in response to salt because there's salt everywhere hunters are putting out salt you know every 300 acres plot got you know a couple salt blocks on it and there's salt on roadsides you know for after winter time so you know there's just lots of salt available for deer now yeah it's not it's just not a limited resource for them anymore right yeah so how did you when when you you mentioned earlier that studying how a deer you know how good is a deer's nose and how does it work you mentioned how challenging that was and it kind of kind of motivates you to go study some other senses a little bit yeah. more yeah but and one of the things we, we didn't study how good a deer's nose is. We, we studied more on the different glands that deer had and how they utilize those glands for communication and such, you know, and, and identifying some of the, the, the chemical analysis of those glands. But, you know, there's been a, just a couple studies that actually kind of tried to approach this idea of how well a deer can smell compared to a human. And one of the ways they did that is by actually counting the number of sensory receptors in the nose. Yep. You know, you can yeah, you can find wildly different estimates on this thing based in the in the scientific literature and on you know in the popular magazines as well. And it was one you know one time believed that humans only had about five million receptors. You know now now the thoughts are that somewhere between ten and 50, ten and fifty million receptors. But you know there was a study done on whitetails back in the 90s and I think they came up with something like 
300 million back there, but that was that's probably a, a low estimate in that number. Very likely, if it's comparable to you know some of the stuff we know about dogs now, it might be over a billion. Yeah, of different receptors. So you know, just the structure of the nose of the human compared to the structure of the nose of the deer, you know, speaks to the how well they can smell. Yeah. But one thing I, I don't think people really appreciate that much though is that you know to smell a particular smell, you need a receptor site that's keyed to that scent. It's not just there's just a random any set any receptor site can pick up any any odor. It's got to have a, a match between the receptor site and the odor. So there, you know, the receptor sites are, are probably built around what a deer, what scents are important to deer too. Versus, you know, a human's receptors might be built around what's important to human. So it's it's actually conceivable, but there are there may be some odors that humans could smell better than deer. It's conceivable. I you know I don't know what that might be, but the you know the point is that there are so many receptor sites on on deer, and very likely a lot of them are are keyed into some of these highly volatile th- uh, compounds that are dispersed by the wind, uh, that are for uh, you know for predator avoidance, as well as some of the things associated with with uh, food resources too. So deer are very likely able to pick up on some sense that we can't even smell, period, regardless of their concentration. Yeah. Well, wouldn't it be, I mean, doesn't it make sense to say then that, sure, like, we we smell gasoline, right? You get gasoline on your hands, we smell, we know that scent, we know what it means. A deer, without question, could probably smell gasoline. It probably just doesn't matter to them. It might just be like, like a curious scent, but in their worldview... They probably really don't like it probably doesn't register as much of like probably doesn't matter. Yeah, that, that kind of brings up the, the idea of, you know, if if you smell something, do you have an innate response to it or is it a learned response to it? And most smells, you know, you, you, you respond to that based on a learned behavior. So a deer learns what what smells may be bad or what smells are good. They must learn the smell of a predator from their mother. Do they inherently fear a predator? You know, there might be some aspect of that, but I think, a lot, you know, how many times you, you can train a deer to walk up to a human? We yeah. train them all the time, you know, and they're not afraid of the smell of a human inherently. They learn that. And you look at, you know, suburban and urban deer, they're not afraid of the smell of a human, you know, so it's it's much more of a learned behavior, which which things are important and which things are not important to them. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you think about that from the perspective of a, you know, if a fawn out there, when mom bumps into the scent of, you know, a coyote just went through or a wolf or something just went through her reaction that, you know, we don't think about communication in in body language nearly as much as we probably should. You do a lot when you train dogs, but Mm -hmm. you know, there's an entire lesson with every encounter that they're just through osmosis, man, they're just taking that in. And we, we don't think about it that way. We think of it as something inherent, but you're right. I mean, it probably all of that stuff's learned. Right, right. And I think a lot of it, like you said, is learned through body language, how the how the dam re- responds to something that the, the, the fawn learns to respond that way as well. And there are just so many subtle things that deer do that we, you know, most humans, if you aren't trained, your eyes not trained to it, you don't see the deer actually doing that. You know, I learned a lot from my wife who she's trained horses all her life and she can tell what a horse is thinking just by what that horse is, his posture, ear posture and stuff like that. So, you know, I translate a lot of that into, you know, deer as well. 
Yeah. That, that world, it, it's so fascinating. I mean, when you, <clears throat> when you talk about, you know, dog training, I hate to keep going back to this, but you know, we have 20, 25,000 years of coevolution and we haven't been able to speak to each other. And yet we can do a lot of really cool stuff. You know, I mean, we, we can speak to a dog, right? But it's not, right. it's not you and I having a conversation and mm-hmm. yet they can figure out a hell of a lot about what we want just by a, how we move and how we look and I, you know, eye contact and all that stuff. And then you think about these animals out there and, in, in a, you know, social animals like deer living together, there's, there's so much going on and, and so much behavior that we really don't get to observe. Like we, we think we do as hunters. We're like, oh, we're pretty mm-hmm. clued into this scrape behavior or fighting, you know, like, and then you think, well, how often do you actually watch two bucks really fight or two does, you know, get up on their hind legs and swat well, each other. It's pretty rare. And when, when you do, you're getting a lesson in body language every time. Right. But a lot of times what you, you see, there's precursors to that in all types of body language that's being used. And many times it's avoided because of those precursors. Yep. Yeah. You, you see them, you see them kind of bump up a little bit, but they don't, you know, some, somebody yeah. wins without having to win, win. Right. Because, you know, they, if you're going to get into a fight, that, that becomes risky for you. Why take that risk if you can just use an you know an eye, an eardrop or something like that to yeah. avoid it? Yeah, and that I mean that this kind of <laughs> goes back to what we talked about earlier about you know calling to a deer that's looking away versus calling towards you, and and just paying attention to deer behavior. I mean every time every time you have two bucks square up around you or you know kind of bump up against one another and don't they're not going to fight but they're doing something they're mm-hmm. you know like they're they're working on each other a little bit or you watch that dominant doe in the little kill plot and that year and a half old doe tries to come in and you see just the just a subtle hunch you know like they're, she's mm-hmm. saying something it teaches you so much about how you need to interact with them like if you like to call or like what you know, like what level of interaction you're going to have with that specific deer that morning as he's walking by, like, does he look like a deer who's going to be callable? Like, is he going to be susceptible to a snort wheeze or is he going to be gonzo? Yeah. Or even, you know, attending grunt is, you know, I've had, I've had bucks that I knew were there. I learned this a long time ago that there are times to use attending grunt and time not to, and the peak of the rut is not the time to use attending grunt because most of the bucks out there have a doe with them. So if they're if they're already on on a hot doe and you use a, you know an aggressive grunt or a tending grunt or something like that they're they're not going to come to fight they're going to take that doe and turn her away and go the other direction right yep. so you know I use a grunt before and after the peak of the rut but not actually during the peak of the rut yeah me too I I actually I really like early season when you when you see the right situation like I killed a buck in Minnesota I don't know five or six years ago. And he came out and there was already two little bucks out in the field and just kind of the way he was around him. I was like, I'm going to grunt this dude in and kill him. And it took like five contact grunts and you could just see him just, he was just like, I don't want to be, I'm, I'm not going to let anybody who's in this field talk to me that way. Like you could just <laughs> see, and it, part of it was the way he was interacting with those other bucks. And he came in and I shot him and it was like almost it was just one of those moments where you just look at it and you go, this is the guy. Like, it's like that hot two-year-old right. turkey that you run into that hits mm-hmm. your, you know, as soon as you yell, he gobbles, you're like, uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> this, it's over. <laughs> yeah, this one's coming. Man, uh, let's let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about deer management. What what What's going on? What do you, what, what's the future of, of the whitetail? I'm going to give you a, a really hard question because there's a million things we could go, but wh- how do you feel about the future of whitetails? 
boy, that's a that, that's a boy, that's a thousand dollar question. Isn't it? Well, know, oh, hey, let me rephrase that. Are we going to be hunting whitetails in fifty years? Yeah, here, here you know, I, I've, I've often thought of this this question, you know, and if I how I would respond if I was asked this question, you know, the whitetail from the time we started restoring whitetail deer over a hundred and some years ago has always had issues that biologists and hunters have had to get go get through to get us to where we are. So, you know, at one time there weren't any deer. Then we, we went through the restoration phase and then we ended up with, uh, in many places, we went through the overpopulation phase, you know, in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Michigan, you know, all throughout the New England states. And, you know, it's, there's always been a different phase that we've gone through. Some of them have been easier to, to, to surmount and some of them haven't. The whitetail is facing a number of challenges right now. And one of the biggest challenges, of course, is CWD, which I know you've done a podcast on. Yep. Uh, but that, that one is a, a, a major um, a major issue because there's no right now there's nothing in the foreseeable future that's going to stop it. So it's going to be ubiquitous across the whitetails range someday, uh, very likely it will be, and it's not. It's going to affect deer populations and it's going to affect deer hunters and the number of hunters. And I think the, the number of hunters is a very important aspect of this. We've already had seen over the last couple of decades a decline in the numbers of hunters. The recruitment and retention of hunters has gone down pretty dramatically over the last couple of decades, which that supports the funding for agencies and so forth. So, you know, when the money starts to dry up, then the management starts to decrease and, you know, you get a, a vicious cycle here. So that's a tough one to deal with. You know, although, you know, the, if, if there was a bright spot to COVID, you know, that COVID actually put a bunch of people in the woods when you, know, you couldn't do you know anything else. So. Uh, there was a bump up and then, you know, this idea with the local boar, you know, the, the, the hunters, you know, new, recruiting new hunters, you know, that's a, it's a good movement in the right direction, you know. So I think, we're you know, that one's being addressed. The CWD issue that's also going to affect populations, um, you know, areas where you have high productivity, like where it is in Wisconsin and stuff like that, in places like that, high productivity, you can manage around it, although we might, might not be managing for the mature bucks as because those are the ones that have the highest prevalence rates, right? But in some areas where um, you got inherently low productivity deer herds, throwing CWD on top of that could be, could be uh, you know, a, a pretty strong population influence driving those populations down. Yeah. But so that's, that's, that's one major. Let me mention one other major issue as well that I see, particularly in the eastern United States, is the changing predator context that the whitetail lives in now. Uh, you know, we didn't have coyotes. We do have coyotes. Bear populations where bears occur are at an all-time high or, or you know, historical high, uh, and both of those are tremendous predators on fawns. And in some areas, like the southern Appalachians, they're driving deer populations down to the point where, right now, we just are finishing up a study in North Georgia where the, the, the survival rate is incredibly low of fawns, uh, and it's most of, mostly uh, due to predation by bears and, and coyotes. To the point where even uh, even eliminating antler harvest, antlerless harvest completely, those populations aren't going to recover unless there's something that can be done to increase fawn recruitment. You know, in most areas where we have good productivity, we can deal with fawn you know fawn predation aspects by predators by reducing antlerless harvest. But there are some areas where we're not going to be able to do that, and those deer populations are going to be. Uh, um, 
they're going to be difficult to deal with. Places in Georgia, North Georgia mountains, where we historically had, you know, some of our earliest deer hunting was done up there. Well, the, the number of hunters is, is incredibly low now just because the deer are gone. And so this, this is probably, I, I'm guessing there's some people listening to this who are young enough where they don't really understand that what you're talking about here is, is their deer herds that haven't historically had coyotes, uh, to deal with. Like this, this right. is a new thing. Like if you look at the history of coyotes, where they came from in the Southwest and have been pushed farther out into the country and they've expanded and they're, they're, you know, we talk about the adaptability of whitetails, which is incredible in the diverse environments they can take hold of and, and, and be pretty fecund in there. When you look at the story of the coyote, that's incredible. That's that mm -hmm. like, think of them what you will. They are an incredible survival machine. And you know, that you look at their diet of, they eat everything from scorpions on up, you know, and, and you'll see them eating apples and stuff sometimes off your stand. Like they're crazy. Right. And now right. you've got these populations of deer, you know, that have been there for generations and generations. And they're dealing with a predator that they don't have that ancestral kind of, uh, you know, knowledge or, you know, survivors survival skills to deal with. And then you throw in bear, you know, bear populations on the rise and how good they are at chomping fawns for the first, you know, X amount of weeks that they're dropped. And it's a sort of a rough picture. Yeah. When you, when you think about it, yeah, I, I don't think until some of the, the you know the last decade or two, when the, the research was done in Pennsylvania here, Georgia, and a number of places across, you know, across the country, uh, how effective both bears and coyotes are when it comes to taking fawns. But, you, know, you think about it for seven to 14 days or more, you got these little protein packets laying out all over the woods. Just to, all they have to do is pick them up. And I remember one time uh, a few years ago up in Pennsylvania, I was up there during uh, right during the peak of the fawning. And in some of the forests, they, there's a lot of hay scented fern, a lot of fern cover on the, on the ground. And I saw a place where a bear had gone through and had actually worked a grid pattern back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, looking for fawns at that time. You know, and that bear could do that all day long. How many fawns is he going to encounter? Certainly there's going to be several of them, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, I, I think that I've talked about this on here a few times. They, they studied uh, fawn mortality in the, in the county I hunt over in Northern Wisconsin. And it was pretty dismal. It was 90% of the fawns were killed in the first 11 months. And like two thirds of those were predation and the bears were the number one predator. And you're mm -hmm. talking a place with a high prevalence of, you've got bears, coyotes, you got some wolves there, not a, not a ton, but you got bobcats. You you got things that can chomp on fawns and bears are so good at it. When you said 90%, was that 90% of the fawns that were born died or 90% of the, the mortality of fawns based on predators? They were dead. So no, no. So 90% of the fawns they studied were dead within the first 11 months and mm -hmm. two thirds of those were predator related. Right. Yeah. So, and it, I mean, it's one County it's, you know, it, but it, 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 to me, it was an eye opener. Cause we, you know, it's the only place I ever hunt where I just incidentally see bears quite often. Like there's, there's a lot of them there and right. you know, we've always had trouble with deer. Like you just don't have very many of them and you start seeing that connection. And then you think about, you know, it, 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 something I want to ask you about is like, you take that just for what it is. If you hunt in the big woods up North, you're like, okay, I'm around these predators that have just kind of always been here. Right. Like, I mean, you know, the, the wolf populations have changed and we, we know that story, 
but generally they've had a rough, the deer have a rough go of it up there. But now you talk about, you know, you're talking about Georgia and you're talking about the Southeast and you're talking about places where, you know, like these predators haven't been, you know, the coyotes haven't been there. The bears have probably been there, but not to the extent they are. So, and now, you know, and you know how people like to talk about, oh, there's bobcats everywhere or there's mountain lions making it into this spot. Why, why are the predators doing so well in these places? Oh, uh, you know, bear populations are doing well because bear harvest has been restricted enough to allow the bear populations to recover to the point is, you know, actually in, in some places like North Georgia mountains, you can take multiple bears now. The point is after you shoot one bear, particularly in those mountains and you have to get it out of there, how many bears do you need to, you know, to kill in your lifetime? It's not like you're going out and killing you know, deer for the freezer and stuff. So, you know, the, the harvest has not matched the population growth and the population growth based on what our research has shown over the last several decades is continuing to increase in the bear population. So the coyotes, you know, coyotes have been extremely successful, particularly here in the Southeast because, you know, we have such varied habitats from urban, suburban, agricultural, you know, different types of forest types, all interspersed together. There's plenty for a coyote to eat because they'll eat just about anything. And we probably have higher coyote densities here than, you know, than most places you'd ever expect to find coyotes. Maybe, maybe you know, similar to South Texas, you know. Um, so when you got that high density of coyotes out there, and then just for a few, a brief time, you have all these fawns hit the ground, they're going to key in on those things because it's a very easy, easy thing for them to find. And particularly, it's easy for them to catch some of that stuff and carry it back to the, the pups in the den because those things are happening at the same time. They're raising pups. They can carry these little protein packets back. Yep. You know, it's not <laughs> picture that versus going out and trying to catch a bunch of mice and carrying them back to, to your pups. You know, yeah. they're, they're going to key on those fawns. Yeah. You're when you're, you know, when we're really hungry, we we gravitate toward calorie dense food, <laughs> and it, which is why we eat a lot of junk food. But we don't think about that the same way. If you're a coyote out there and you can work all day to catch a bunch of grasshoppers, or you can work all day and find one fawn, you know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if there was a market for coyotes, or if there's a you know, right now you know the highest mortality of coyotes in in Georgia and most of the southeast are hunter harvested coyotes. There's a lot of people hunting coyotes. Uh, and then the road kills are the other major influence. But you think of one coyote producing, you know, you know, five, six, seven, eight, eight pups versus a fawn, a doe producing one, maybe two fawns. Uh, it's kind of disproportionate there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have, we don't have the trapping that we used to, you know, I mean, it's just, we just generally don't. And that's, that's such a, such an effective way to control coyotes and some of the other predators and I, I think you know i i don't know i don't know about where you live but so i live in the i live in the suburbs of the twin cities and these people around me like my wife's friends they have no clue about nature like no. <laughs> they just they just don't so when everybody started getting like ring doorbell cameras and you know like the surveillance cameras that a lot of people have or you know a lot of people will put out a, a trail camera on their bird feeder or whatever now you know so it's like they're seeing, oh my God, there's coyotes everywhere. I'm like, yeah, you can freaking hear them. I hear coyotes all the time right out my front door. And now the bear thing, you know, it's like, oh my God, we, we, now we have bears. And I'm mm-hmm. like, now you see bears. Like, now you're seeing 
you didn't I, you didn't understand that how you know like we we think of these animals as sort of being out in the wild you know like mm-hmm. a bear it bears a prime example right like when when the average person thinks of a bear they think of it in the big woods out in the wild and you know you see it in this beautiful place or whatever and they're living in your backyard eating in your bird feeder and you know digging up like bees nests and stuff in on the soccer field you know like they they're living there right there with us with these deer and they're just their populations are doing really well and we kind of don't we don't seem to really recognize how detrimental that can be until it catches up to our deer populations and by then you're in a really reactive state and it's rough yeah and you know the other thing is the deer populations have done the same thing they moved they were the first ones to move into the suburbs you know and urban suburban areas and now these other things are following them in there because frankly there's nothing for them to fear you know and that that's a whole concept in ecology called the ecology of fear and fear is a very important driver on animals behavior you know fear of being predated on you know you know what does a coyote have to fear in the suburbs maybe the front end of a ford or something but that's about it you know uh deer in the suburbs don't have anything to fear now bears are getting into the same situation they're not hunted in these situations, so they have no fear of humans. And with having no fear of humans, they're going to coexist with humans. Yeah. And it, and I think that we really underestimate how good they are at not showing themselves to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they are, they're masters of, of staying hidden. Um, Carl, we are uh, just about out of time. I, so I got one question I want to ask you. In all the research you've done, and, and it's been a ton, you've learned a ton, you've, you've contributed so much to this space. What's the question that you just, that keeps you up at night that you want to learn about deer? Like what's one thing that you're like, I wish if you could wave a magic wand and you could study it and and probably come to an answer, what would it be? Well, I'll tell you, it comes back to what we, we were talking about. If I could do like Spock with a Vulcan mind meld, you know, <laughs> get inside of his brain, uh, you know, I, I think there, there's just really getting a, feel for what they're experiencing when they're experiencing sensory inputs from their either their eyes or their nose you know because we've done a lot of that stuff with the deer vision and stuff like that we got a good feel for what they see but you know we can say it's say it's something but we can't experience that you know so that'd be the neatest thing to be able to experience what they actually you know experience when they're visualizing something or you know either whether a deer or a dog like you said i've trained dogs all my life as well uh, scent dogs and just the the world that they live in in this world of aromas ro- world of chemicals is 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 just fascinating we have absolutely no appreciation for it you know yeah i know that's that drives me nuts too i just wish i mean when you think about if you just like if you're standing in a cattail slough and you just look around and you like all the details you see like if you're pheasant hunting you know like all just just visually what you can pick up and then think about how, you, if you could do that with your nose, you know, close your eyes and, and perceive that much different stuff going on, but do it with your nose. It's so crazy. Yeah. So, you, you know, you asked me earlier a question. I don't know if you got a second or not, but, uh, you know, which scent would the deer most likely want, not want to lose? You know, that idea about the sense of smell, if it's related to predation, that's, that's one aspect. But, you know, I think a deer without a sense of smell would have a hard time surviving. I think a blind deer could survive better than a deer without a sense of smell. Because of the communication or because of the predators? The communication and food. Oh. A blind deer can find something to eat, but a, a deer without a nose is going to have a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't think about that. 
Um, Carl, this has been so much fun, man. I'm so glad I got to talk to you and have you on here. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a quick hour, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, we'll do, we'll do it again. <laughs> more, more than welcome to. Awesome. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for some more white goodness. This has been Wired to Hunt, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, I just want to thank you so much for listening and so much for your support. And if you're in the market for a little bit more whitetail content, you can head on over to themeateater.com slash wired. Again, that's themeateater.com slash wired. And you'll see a pile of new articles by guys like Bo Martonic and Andy May and myself and Mark, whole bunch of them. And if you want more, you can head over to our YouTube channel as well. If those, if those articles aren't enough, we have a Wired to Hunt YouTube channel and we drop weekly how-to videos there as well. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill.